Hello everybody and welcome to WTS 160. My name's Danny Murray. I'm Graham Merrigan. How are you, bud? Very good. I'm very hungry. Yeah, I'm lepping as well, man. I'm lepping. As we record <laughs> as we record this, it's hitting 25 to 9 of a Wednesday evening. I've been on the go since half past four and I would eat a scabby child. What are you planning on eating after this? Uh, the lovely Oksana is currently downstairs cooking, um, so I, d- I don't know what I'm in store for, um, but I'm hoping... To- actually, do you know what? Look, hunger is good sauce, Graham. Whatever appears on that plate will be wolfed down. It'll be milled. will be milled. It will be milled. Well, how are you finding the canoe um, from Dublin to Parlish in the, in the after work time? In in general, all right. Like, uh, funnily enough, today was the worst day. Today took us over two hours to get home. And that's the first time that we, we've encountered such an issue. Other than that, light and breezy, an hour to an hour and 15, which for some people will sound absolutely horrific. But um, I think if you go around the world, people will snap your arm off for just an hour commute. Do you know what I mean? To and from. Yeah. And there's some people who spend more than that having to get like a Lewis and a Dart to their job. Do you know what I mean? I look. I know. The, I know the feeling. I mean, I hate my four-minute commute. Yeah, I was gonna say. I mean, like you, you must have a real struggle. The Whiteville Road must be fucking chocolate block <laughs> now that Laura were back to school. <laughs> <laughs> you absolute beller. Remember, oh. we used to meet in the traffic, and we used to high five. Yeah, yeah. Well, that might still happen from time to time because I, I, I dropped the wolf pack up to me ma every so often during the week to to give them a bit of company and give me my bit of company. And yeah. uh, well, we, Sorry, we didn't use the high five. We just used to wave. We we did. We'd wave. And sometimes the window would go down and we'd shout across the lanes to each other. Yeah, and Alexander would go mad because you were talking over her. Exactly. Shouting across her. And I'm like, will you stop talking? I'm talking to Graham. Be polite. You know what I mean? Come here, I wanted to ask you a question. Go for it. Um, Leo Varadkar. Yep. Um... He wanted to create Twitter accounts, yeah, um, to create simply put fake news. He wanted to, what? he wanted, he wanted to create Twitter uh, accounts and let them be the first to comment on uh, news released by the government. Yeah, well, well I don't know. How has how has this been gone? How has this been brushed under the carpet? Yeah, well, I don't know if it was Twitter accounts or if it was more so just he wanted to create um, anonymous online profiles that would react to news stories. Um, react positively to news stories about him or about the government or about Fine Gael or whatever and it's how is so, this not being talked about? I was going to say somehow this has been underplayed there was there was a couple of mentions of it in the media during the week and now and let, let's just let's just strip this down for a quick second yeah um, what is one of the biggest talking points of the Russia collusion in the whole Donald Trump thing Absolutely. Social media, Cambridge Analytica, manipulating online yep. stuff and all that kind of stuff. People are screaming about Putin and Trump and collusion and online and oh, it's fucking Russian bots everywhere. Russian bots. Leo Varadkar, Taoiseach of the Republic of Ireland, not Vladimir Putin, Supreme Leader of Russia, not Donald Trump, fucking benevolent fool leader of America. Leo fucking Varadkar, Fianna Gael leader and Taoiseach of Ireland, wanted to do this. Lads, we are living in a fucking simulation, right? We're living in just this bizarre world where nobody seems to be picking up on this stuff. And it's 
frightening. It is frightening, man. I, I couldn't believe it. I, I still can't believe it's not in the news. But maybe we will... We might bring it up with our guest anyway. Yeah, yeah, we might. You never know. We never know. Um, in other news, Graham Merrow, Merrigan. Yeah. You're looking well. <laughs> nice one. I just thought I'd throw that at you. See if, see if it caught you <laughs> off guard at all there. You did catch me off guard. Come on. I'm tired. I've been, I was in the gym and I'm starving. How is, uh, what's your one? Ah, uh, what's her name? Who? I can't, who? I don't remember. Mm. Ah, was she something to do with the gym? You know, you're one. She's something to do with this podcast before. Once upon a time, there may have been somebody other than us, and I'm just trying to figure Uh, it out. Lindsay. Lindsay Doyle. That's she's a one. Ah, delighted to hear it. She worked the bollocks out me earlier on. Yeah, ah, delighted to hear it. And uh, the lab is going well for Lindsay, Damo, and Austin. I assume so, yeah. I never ask. <laughs> I say I'm so. Yeah, I'll just go down and get trained and leave. <laughs> leave in a state. Yeah, exactly. Leave in an absolute... A triceps like jelly and she doesn't give a bollocks. Absolutely, yeah. Um, we need to... There's smoke alarms going off me, Gaff. Can you hear that? That's the food. That is the food. I don't know what cubes is cooking. but Well, I hope it's the bleeding food and I'm not going to have a burnt arse on me now in a minute. I don't hear her <laughs> shouting at me. <laughs> To say, get out, Dan, get out, it's all gone wrong. Are you alright? Oh, it's oh. off, it's off. No, it's not. I remember the, I remember the alarm went off in the Oigo uh, during an Orla match years ago. And uh, nobody, everyone looked around to see if they could see any smoke or a fire. And nobody moved. <laughs> and a, it just kept going on. No. That's typical Ireland, isn't it? Yeah, I've been in a few pubs where that's happened and nobody's moved. Don't see smoke, smoke, I'm not leaving me point. Sure. Yeah, sorry, I, yeah, sorry, I just opened the bed. I'm, I'm recording in the bedroom, and I just opened the bedroom window, and a waft of burnt steak that came from the kitchen below. I don't know how them really? smoke alarms turn off. Oh, there we go, it's turned off now. There we go. Jesus Cubes, what's going on, huh? Apologies to the people who are listening who have just had to deal with a scream. I'm not editing that out because I think it's hilarious. But anyway, <laughs> you get all you get all the ambiance in this podcast. Uh, yeah, look, let's go to our guest after that because that was just weird. So, Merrow. Our guest, our guest is independent multimedia journalist. He's based in Stockholm. He's just opened a new Patreon account, uh, our man in Stockholm. Check it out. His name is the wonderful Philip O'Connor. How are you, Phil? I'm brilliant, lads. I'm brilliant, lads. Thank you very much indeed for inviting me on. It's a pleasure to get to talk to you at long last. No, thank yeah, you. Thank you for your time, Phil. Really appreciate it, mate. No because we we had met every time we had Pizzi on, uh, we kept mentioning to get you, and we just kept we just kept forgetting <laughs> to ask you. So sorry about that. <laughs> I'm not the most memorable of characters until you've actually had me on your podcast. So <laughs> would you have me on then? You know, then the numbers there, and it's in the Skype and everything, so you can get me back again. You know, but uh, yeah, was it Pizzi who got You're me on here? Was it? Yeah, if we tell the truth, was it Pizzi? Was it? Because, you know, he does, again, he owes me one or two favours, that young thing, you know? <laughs> no, no, not this time round. Uh, I was following your great coverage of the World Cup, and I said to Danny, let's get uh, let's get Phil on. So, feck people. Um, yeah. <laughs> He's a lovely up altogether. You know? He's only in the Haiti <laughs> place, now. He's a journalist. We'll have to put him on. Lovely up altogether. Lovely hair as well. You know, lovely hair. Great, lovely great smile. Hair. Mm. He does, yeah, yeah. And a great dog as well, you know? So, I mean, b- yeah, between the hair and the smile, dog, that boy is going to go places, you know? 
a majestic <laughs> human being I would describe him as. Definitely, definitely. One of my favourite people in the world, I have to say. Yeah. Come here, Phil. You're living in Sweden 20 years now. What led you over there? Um, if you stop any sort of pasty-looking Irish bloke on the streets of Stockholm, lads, and he will tell you exactly the story I'm going to tell you now, right? I went out one Sunday night in 1994 for a few drinks with a friend of mine who'd no money. I wasn't even going to go out, right? But he'd no money. And I wasn't going to lend him money either because this is the kind of fellow, if you lent him money, that money was gone. She so says, oh, you know, there's a load of all pairs going into town to have a few jars and somebody's going away or something like that. Can we go in? And he sort of convinced me to go in. And I met this Swedish young one there and they were sort of 20 odd years. That was 24 years ago. And, uh, three or four years after that we moved over here to Sweden and I've been here ever since and yes I drive a Volvo and yes we have the kids <laughs> and the house and the home and no I won't be ever getting out of here anytime soon but you know what it's a great place to live it's a fascinating place to live so so it was, the, it was the best thing that ever happened to me. Now, again, if we have this conversation on the 2nd of January when it's dark, apart from about four or five hours a day, and the snow piled up outside my windows, I'd be going, lads, get me out of here. But no, it's a great place to live. And it was one of the best things that ever happened to me. And she's a wonderful woman. And she still puts up with me to this day. Well, that's, that's the I, interview I, over because you just answered all our questions, Phil. So thanks for your time, you go, Amanda. Thanks, thanks all the best. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to do it again sometime. Tell you, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is, is Sweden the home of Marib- Maribu Marib- chocolate? Is that how Marib- it is? chocolate, yeah. Yeah, my, and uh, one of my daughter's friends, her dad works there. So, like, uh, no. it's, he's the most popular man in the parish at this point in time. So, every time she goes over to visit, she comes back with a bunch of stuff under her arm. So, it's fantastic chocolate. I have to say, though, I still strike a blow for a Cadbury's chocolate. There's oh, no yeah, beating yeah. it comes down to it, you know. So, there's a couple of shops around there's a, there's, sorry to interrupt you. There's one or two places that you can go now uh, where you can get some sort of Cadbury's chocolate and that. So it can usually be found in those places. But I saw a van driving around the other day, right, with a Barry's Tea sticker on the back of it and a Swedish reg plate, right? Which that means that means the invasion has started, boys. The, the patties are taking <laughs> over here. The Barry's Tea. They tried it out in a supermarket near me a couple of years ago, right? They put a pallet of it out on the floor and the Irish arrived like locusts, right? So they arrived with shopping trolley with tea bags and nothing else in it, right? Tea bags. There you go. Like five million boxes of tea bags and the people are looking and they're going what's the matter with you it may never happen again you know it's like a fucking nuclear winter but, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah so that's getting popular slowly but surely we're taking over you were saying there about the snow in January what you you get that you probably get that every year what were you like because uh, you, you keep in, you keep uh, in the loop at home events obviously with Twitter what were you like when you were watching us trying to get through the snow in March I, I was howling laughing. I was howling laughing. It's it's one of those things that when you get so used to it over here. Now, right, it's it's not Ireland's fault, right? Sweden is built for this. They have the trucks with the sand and, you know, they have drivers on standby and the pavements are built for it. There's even, if you're driving on a country road here, lads, there's these poles that are about two metres high, right? Orange yokes, so that the snowplows don't bulldoze off the road, right? They only want to bulldoze the road, not the pavement or anything else like that. So the whole country is set up for it. But then when it comes to Ireland, like, you know, the whole place is obviously not set up for it. No has shoes or jackets or coats or hats you know fellas that go out in December short sleeve shorts and stand outside nightclubs and this kind of thing but the, the hilarious thing is that every now and again you get a new producer on Liveline on RTE radio right and they go oh ring a man in Sweden and see what he says about the snow and you know the producer will ring you up and she go you know well how should you drive in, in snow and cold weather in Ireland and my answer is you shouldn't and they just hang up <laughs> And they're saying all these things, you know, oh, well, if you put something heavy in the boot, it doesn't matter. You know, you're going to wind up in somebody else's garden in no time at all. So, you know what, just sit down, get the Netflix on and just wait for it to melt away because, you know, the country isn't built for it. Now, having said that, after the summer we had and climate change and all these kinds of things, we may need to sort of revisit that. But uh, that was really funny, though, when we ran out of gravel a few years ago. Do you remember that? We ran out of grit for the road. 
then all the snow melted as the ship arrived into the North Wall Quay with a million tons of gravel on it that never got used, you know. So, but uh, yeah, Where does it this, uh, yeah, I think they probably used it up the last time, but now there'll be, there'll be a gravel shortage again, you know. But the thing is that, as I say, the society here is very well organized, boys, you know, in terms of everything. Like, you know, if a bus came late, the, you know, the government would probably fall. Jeez, if it came early to be a revolution, you know, that way, because uh, really? they've they spent so much time sort of organising everything and making sure everything runs on time. People get their noses seriously out of joint now if something doesn't work. We were standing there and the bus doesn't come. Because, you know, I'm not going to say it's a matter of life and death, but standing around at sort of minus 20 for 10 minutes extra waiting on your bus, that's a real pain in the hoop, like, you know. Yeah. It's one thing not having a, a, a roof on your bus stop in Balbriggan or something like that. But, you know, if that happens over here and you're standing there in the freezing bloody cold, it's not all that acceptable. So, like I say, it's, it's a very well-organised society and it's set up for kids and that kind of thing. So, it's a great old place to live, you know. And what are you talking? Are you talking like left, centre or right? Or who who runs the show over there? Uh, the show at the moment is a bit of a mess, right? And there's a, an election actually coming up on Sunday. We're speaking to you just a few days before uh, the election on Sunday, right? And basically what happens is nobody has any chance of a majority, right? Because you've got sort of the far right on one side, they get about 20% of the vote. Then you have the sort of the centre left, they get about 25, 30, 35% of the vote. Then you have the centre right, they get about the same. And basically you'll have a minority government that'll sort of limp through. That'll be, it'll have to be a centrist government for the sake of it. But Sweden and many of the Nordic countries are sort of built on, since the Second World War, they're built on social democracy, right? So it would have been sort of centre-left policies uh, going back to the, very much the end of the Second World War. The Swedes were lucky in that way because uh, all their infrastructure was intact. They were neutral during the war. It was like themselves, ourselves and Switzerland who kind of got away with not getting completely bombed to bits. So they had forestry, they had engineering, they had everything that was needed to rebuild Europe after the Second World War. And boy, Jesus, they went behind the door and getting the salesmen out and getting them sorted out. So that generated an enormous amount of wealth in this country. And then they used that wealth, they invested it in social housing, a healthcare system, uh, you know, uh, if you're unemployed, if you're sick, all of these kinds of things were there. Now, those things are sort of, even in the time that I've been here, the two decades that I've been here, they become a little bit watered down and people are starting to ask, you know, should we go back to this or what should we do about it? You know, so there's a very high level of services there as well. Yeah, but I suppose you could say on the whole, a sort of a centre left idea uh, would be what the whole thing is based on, you know? Yeah, and the 20% of the far right, is that is that a worrying thing for Swedish society, do you think? Or are, yeah. are, the, are, are, are the normal jobs so worried the way they seem to be? kind of worried, we're worried in Ireland about the the far right, we're worried in in, in England as well, jeez, you've got the, the whole Labour thing going on with Jeremy Corbyn and yeah, it's, it, it seems it, to be taking over Yeah, no, it's, it's really weird, right, because when you look at the election coverage out of Sweden uh, I was looking at an article in the New York Times today and, uh, you know, everybody's gone, oh, these guys are coming out of nowhere, they haven't come out of nowhere they've been doubling their vote every election for the last since about 2002, I think was when it started so 2002, 2006 2010, and 2010 was the first time they got into the parliament, because you have to have at least 4% of a vote as a party to get into the government, or sorry, not to, to get into the parliament at all here, to take your seats so there's no Mick Wallace here, and there's no Ming Flanagan and there's no Claire Daly or anything I said that you have to be in a party and the party has to have 4% of the vote. So the lads got in then and then, you know, they went up and up and up. The problem really is that there's this sort of crisis. Uh, it's all over the world now. It's in America. It's in Europe. It's in Britain, it's in Ireland as well. Ireland isn't isn't that really, it's not fertile ground for these far-right ideas, because we've always been pretty right-wing anyway. So, you know, without the, the sort of the naked racism and anti-Semitism that often comes along with that, you know. But um, in places like here, I've seen it happen in Finland, I've seen it happen in Norway and Denmark, where the far-right gets into power. Now, the great thing is that, like, you know, they're fantastic lads, that, you know, they talk a great fight, then they get into government, they can't do fucking anything because they haven't a clue what they're up to, you know. So they'll stand there and they'll shout at people in the middle of the square in the street, they get people to vote for them. But then, like, 
the Sweden Democrats, who are the party with their roots to the neo-Nazi movement here, started in 1989, like, they've had so many local politicians there who don't even go to the meetings. They've never put down a motion. They've never even tried to do anything politically when they get in, because they quite simply do not know how, you know? They can't keep their shit together long enough to do it. So, uh, they tend to be treated in, in sort of federal politics here, or, or uh, what you call national politics here, um, Nobody else will touch them, you know, with a 40-foot barge pole. So they've been kept out of everything to do with the government pretty much uh, ever since that time. They got into the parliament in 2010. That might change after this election. I would doubt it. But, yeah, you know, they are uh, sort of, you know, kept at a distance. So that means then that the other two blocks, the left and right block, they sort of split it up between themselves and, and they get on with it, you know. It is a worrying thing. And uh, you'll see statistics. I saw uh, a study, an academic study done about why this happens, right? And they said that since 2008, the financial crisis and everything else like that, the people who joined this Sweden Democrats party are the people who've had it worst, right? So if we look at the way things are done at the moment, you have consultants and freelancers and pretty much everything. Do you remember the way everybody you knew in the building industry in the first decade of this century in Ireland had that C2 contract, they were contractors, right? They were self-employed, right? And that was a, a sort of a, a very method of employment because, you know, if there wasn't enough work there and you turned up at the site on a Monday morning, your man just told you where to go and you'd know, there's no dull to be claimed or anything else like that, you know. So that has made everything very uncertain for people. So 2008 came, the financial crash came, jobs disappeared. The first people out the door were the, were the subcontractors and the self-employed people because you can get rid of them without paying the money redundancy or that kind of thing. And that is part of, of the whole thing, you know. Then they see other people coming in, maybe refugees coming in. They think, oh, you know, they're getting it better than us. They don't realise that most of these people have lost everything they ever had in the world and have no fucking hope of ever going back there. So it is a worrying thing. We we kind of need to rediscover the compassion and, and the, the social democratic ideal that it was built on was we're all doing this together. You know, there's no man as an island. You know, we all have to pay for the roads and we all have to pay for the lights on the streets and the public transport and this kind of thing. So we may as well do it together. You know, it was very successful here for a long time. But in recent times, there's been a bit of a sense of selfishness creeping in there. People going, now, oh, well, it doesn't matter. I just want to pay a little bit less tax and have more money left over to go to Thailand once every couple of years, you know. And it's, whereas that sounds like a great idea in the short term it's nothing to leave to my children or my grandchildren or whoever else comes after us you know it's mad as well because with all that um what we've seen lately as well and, and particularly on talk shows in ireland i don't know if you would you would you would you stay clued into some radio talk shows for yeah in ireland? well i i try to but most of the hosts have blocked me at this point in time so it's very hard <laughs> <laughs> you know I, I, I think i know you're like, shall we say the likes of Niall Boylan and that kind of thing? Um, you know, yeah, I would have well, long ago for questioning Niall and that, you know. But the like, likes a lot of, of that would yep. the, the likes of Niall Boylan and, and and people like him um, would kind of give a platform of people that go on about freedom of speech and stuff. But I was I listened to um, uh, news talk there recently, and uh, they were talking about in France, Marie Le Pen was yeah. um, taken taken off a, a, a speaking engagement um, yeah. because of our views, our views and stuff like that. And I was yeah. listening to it and I was kind of going, because Kira Kelly was going, and we had this, Danny, before where, um, when we spoke uh, a couple of weeks ago about Alex Jones being taken down off certain uh, social media platforms. But I was a bit surprised to hear Kira Kelly say, um, you know, this is this is ruining freedom of speech for Maria Le Pen, and I was like, "How is it though? Because it's not a, it's a, it, she's she's been her, her invitation has been revoked because of certain issues. It's you're you're entitled. Yeah. Where I stand on this is very simple. You're entitled to freedom of speech. You're not entitled to a platform. There's a, there's a key difference there for me. 
And yep. you know, and you see it in America. Um, ah, his name's gone from my head. He's just after being pulled off like that a festival. Your man that was with Trump. Yeah, Steve there? Bannon. Steve Bannon. No, Steve Bannon. Steve Bannon. Yeah, he's yeah. another one. He's just being whipped off uh, the lineup because people were pulling out of the festival and all sorts of things. Um, yeah, look, I, like, I mean, yeah, freedom of speech, freedom of speech, but uh, entitlement to a platform does, doesn't wash with me. Like, I, no, I actually remember. Yeah, what what Kira Kelly said about that was was like I actually ended up interacting with Kira on social media about this because freedom of speech is a very specific concept. It doesn't have to do with anybody telling you what to say or disagreeing with you or anything else like that. Freedom of speech in the Constitution in Ireland and in America and elsewhere, basically the government cannot pass any law that stops you saying what you want to say, right? So you have a right to say anything you want to say. Now, two things. It is not an absolute right. I can't hang up this Skype call and go and say, I was talking to two paedophiles on the podcast last night, right? Because that's defamation. I can't say something that is uh, untrue and that is damaging to your good character, right? So it's what's called a qualified right. I can't abuse that and go around and start accusing people. And God knows we've seen everybody making all sorts of accusations now, not least in this presidential campaign about stuff that's going on, right? Yeah. So it's, it's also, and you're, you're entirely correct about that. You have the right to say anything you want to say and the state cannot stop you doing so, provided you stay within the laws of defamation and that kind of thing. But absolutely nobody has to provide you with a platform to do so, right? So, you know, Bannon being kicked off the New Yorkers panel, absolutely. Web Summit, I think it was, dropping Marine Le Pen, absolutely. They are private enterprises. They can do whatever they like, right? And now the other thing I, I said to Kira about freedom of speech was I look forward to the day when she has people on there who are on the receiving end of what Bannon is saying and what Marine Le Pen is saying. Take in the Roma people who have been uh, spat at. There was a man murdered here in Sweden, kicked to death in a place called Jönköping in the Midlands, right? He'd been taunted and abused used for months by young teenage lads, right? Because the Roma are one of those targets at the moment that the far right have. They say everybody's over here, it's organised begging and they're making millions and they all drive big Mercedes back in, in Romania and all this kind of thing. So there's a campaign to go against these people. Nobody ever thinks of the, the freedom of speech or the right to a platform of the victims. It's only these lads. Steve Bannon is not a victim, right? What he is doing is he's creating victims. He's creating people that get attacked. And like this, this is the thing that I have against us. Like, oh, we're going, oh, well, let's meet them in the marketplace of idea, of ideas let's debate them okay that's great but what are the new ideas here that we haven't seen before when it comes to combating racism or nazism i'd really love to hear them because they don't fucking work you cannot reason with these people if somebody's going to tell me that you know oh you know uh, religion my religion makes me better than you get the fuck out of here you know i just yeah. i've been having these discussions for about 15 years you know music and especially, to me I don't ears, feel... music to me <laughs> ears. But this is the thing, like, you know, this whole idea of, oh, you know, we have to hear them. We don't fucking have to hear them out. You know, that's exactly but the last I'm thing. Surprised. I was surprised that um, Kira Kelly was taking that stance, to be honest. Ah, I mean, Kira defended George Hook when he was making apologies and saying that women were, were in some way responsible for being raped and this kind of thing. So it didn't surprise me in the slightest. But to be honest, and I, like, I like Kira. I think Kira is a very professional broadcast. she's a broadcaster. She's a very intelligent woman. But a lot of the time, people don't think things to their logical conclusion. Right? As I say, freedom of speech, very, very specific. One presidential candidate was using the, uh, the expression of Ireland being a rogue state. A rogue state is also a very, very specific term. You can't just borrow these things and read find them because you want people to listen to news talk at lunchtime or because you want to get clicks to your presidential campaign donation site or whatever else that happens to be. That's just not how it works. You have to talk within the limits of these ideas and that kind of thing. And fine, if you find something new, as I say, if you find a new way of arguing with Nazism, you go right ahead, be my guest. But we can't allow these things to be sort of twisted and to make people like Niall Boyle and the kind of people 
that he likes to put on the radio into victims because it's just like it's, it's not only is it not being truthful it's the exact opposite of truthful you've hit the nail on the head there as well phil when you said about the clicks and that because for these people and again and and i, I respect noel or respect Kira kelly or respect anyone that, that, that that's out there doing their thing like but the simple when you just strip this down to its bare basic this whole thing of providing a platform to people with that you know let's say shock opinion even though it's not a shock to anybody anymore is because yeah. they know people are going to be shouting at their radio this is ratings and that, that's ultimately what it comes down yeah. to for them that's ultimately Kira yeah. Kelly knows if she and it's the same like when, when the Late Late Show had Sean Spicer on it's because they knew people were going to tune in you know that kind of thing like yeah, yeah, but that is part of it. But the, the problem I have with colleagues in the business, right, with journalists and with editors and with producers who do this, is when you do this, every time you rub the lamp, you have to be responsible for the consequences of the genie that you are letting in, yeah, right? Yeah. And that is what we don't do, right? I, now, I actually remember interviewing a fella from the far right when they got it, when the Sweden Democrats got into the parliament in 2010. And I interviewed a fella and I looked back at the footage and I thought that the fella had had too much to drink, right? So I, in fairness to him, I said, right, I'm going to go and interview other people. I'm not going to put this out here because this just makes them look stupid, right? These are the issues. I don't agree with them at all. I, like, you know, if it had been left to me as a person, if it had been left to me with the political opinions that I had, I should have made him look like the biggest fucking idiot in the world, right? But I didn't do that because that would have been unfair to him because the genie I would have let out of the bottle, he would have had to live with the consequences of his mate seeing him looking pissed up on the television, celebrating and blaming immigrants for things, right? Mm. Now, we all need to do that. We all have to think, and, you know, we have to think, if we're George Hook and we're saying, you know, that maybe women shouldn't walk alone at night and that kind of thing, no, George has never said maybe men should try to keep it in their trousers. Do you know what I mean? We need exactly, to think of yeah. the people who... Yeah, we, but again, always, who is not being heard here? Who, like, you know, who's not getting the chance to put their case forward? We often hear from a certain institute when it comes to matters of, of morality and sexuality and that kind of thing, right? But, we, but it took so long for anybody from the other side of, of like, say, uh, LGBT people, for them to have a chance, for them to have a platform to talk about their lived experience. Even when that chap was murdered in Fairview Park in the early 80s, you never heard from the gay community because they were too afraid at that point. Again, yeah. we never took responsibility for the genies we let out of the bottle and in, unfortunately like you know I, there was a classic case a few years ago when uh, John Burton was Minister for Social Protection and they started this thing and they do it regularly about this thing about social welfare fraud right social welfare fraud in Ireland is absolutely statistically insignificant right but they go on about savings oh we saved you 52 million euros then you look at the press release and in the fourth paragraph it's projected savings if this had been allowed to go on for a million years or more right so there's absolutely no truth in anything that they're, they're writing but they are demonized people on social welfare. So, you know, the, the, the young girl who might live in the same apartment as you, who might be on rent allowance and that kind of thing, trying to go to school, trying to better herself and that kind of thing, all of a sudden she becomes the enemy, right? And it's an easy way, you know, if Niall Boylan wants clicks or he wants people to listen to his radio shows, politicians, the equivalent of clicks for them is votes, right? So it's easy. But you're letting a genie out of the bottle there where people look down on people because they're poor or because they're single mothers or because they're gay. And again, if we don't take responsibility for the genies we let out of the bottle, then it's only a short step from that to the marches that I've seen in recent weeks in Stockholm where we have actual Nazis on the street. We didn't even have them in the Second World War in this country, but we have them now. 
because these fellas feel good enough about themselves to come out and to show their true colours. So we need to be really, really responsible. And that goes for you as well, lads. If you have somebody who's on the podcast here and they're coming to you with ideas that are unacceptable or that are going to be damaging or that can and somehow uh, trigger a bad reaction in somebody maybe who has been abused or that kind of thing, right? you have a responsibility to say to that person, look, I don't know if this is the right platform for this kind of thing. I don't know if that's the right way to broach this subject because we all as content creators and media people and as people who are looking to, to talk to an audience about these subjects, we all have that responsibility for the genies we let out. Yeah, it's a fair oh, point. Real. It's a fair point. And I suppose that that's deadly. Like one one of the things That's exactly how I feel. <laughs> one of the that, that's why this podcast is at the top of the iTunes charts, lads. That's the thing. <laughs> <laughs> Look, one one of the things for us, I suppose, as well, is like I mean, we we've always approached and I suppose I, I'm using us because I can't speak for other people that have podcasts or for uh legitimate bona fide journalists like yourself, Phil, but uh like uh, I don't know, Meryl, I think our approach to this has always just been, you know, don't be a dickhead. If they're not a dickhead, yeah, grand, we'll talk to them. Now, yeah. there are some people who say we have broke that rule with a lot of guests. But for us, it's always been a case of, ah, they seem like, like we had Michael Graham on a while ago, who is yeah. right wing and very, you know, like, you know, pro, pretty much. He was a wanker. <laughs> well, <laughs> he's a wanker, but. At the same time, he's a wanker that I'm like, do you know what? Yeah, he's a wanker, but he's a wanker you can have a logical enough conversation with. He's not going to yep. be, you know, the lads who are uh, out in Virginia doing the mad crack that you've seen a while ago. You know what I mean? Yep. And, and that's, in Charlottesville, it is. Char- yeah. Charlottesville, sorry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then when, you, when you're talking about kind of seeing Nazis on the street, because suddenly mm. they feel like they're, they're, there's a swell of pride about this kind of thing, you, that, that's when you have to kind of take stock and say, Okay, where is where does the feed coming from? Like they they clearly now feel as though they're nourished enough to do this. So we need to stop that feed, and that's not shutting off the whole freedom of speech thing, as you said. Like when you were talking about the platform and talking about the genie out of the bottle, this is just fucking common sense that the media yeah. need to look at. And I think th- th- there's a massive responsibility for media organisations out there that they need to kind of go, yeah, all right, it's not about clicks here anymore. This is now getting to a point yeah. where fucking hate crime is becoming a day-to-day activity and it's mad like this this is the thing but what happens a lot of the time right you say if you're going to be interviewed on, a, on any radio station right you're going to have a, a guy or a girl who's presenting the show and you're going to have a producer who decides who the guest is and a researcher right mm-hmm. so the researcher does the research and they call somebody up and they look at their wikipedia page and they find out how old they are what books they've written and you know the reason that they're going to be on the show will be told something by the producer and they hand what's called a brief then to the presenter so the presenter doesn't necessarily have any fucking idea what they're talking about, right? It's like Ryan Torbery talking about sport, right? Everybody knows that Ryan Torbery has neither the interest nor the knowledge to have any sort of a discussion about sport, you know? I mean, he looks like he, he could be discussing bacon for the, for the most part, you know? And th- But that's just, and this happens every single day. So the thing is that when a Bannon goes on a program like that, they will just steamroller these people beyond belief. Farage has done it, Jordan Peterson has done it. And you, you can't fact check these people live because a lot of the time they don't even care about what they're saying. They don't care whether it's true or not. And then all of a sudden, what you've done is that you've given, say, you know, on Liveline, you've given uh, an audience of 300,000 people have heard this, and they've no idea to work out, well, what's right and what's wrong here, you know? 
know? So we need to be much better prepared to meet these ideas. So if you're talking to Nigel Farage, you're going to need to know all about Brexit. You're also going to need to know all about his connections to the City of London, the fact that he's an ex-trader himself, the people he's dealing with, who financed his party and that kind of thing. And the really, really good journalists out there can take these guys on because they know enough about them. To, it's not the first question that you ask in any interview that makes any difference. It's the questions, the follow-up questions that you ask that will show you, that will show that you know what you're talking about and that you're not letting these guys away with it. But there's a second part of it as well, lads, that I, th I think gets sort of ignored in this, right? The reason there are Nazis on the streets of Stockholm at the moment and there's a town called Ludvika where they've pretty much taken over and they, can, they have permission to demonstrate every day from now until the election if they want, right? But there needs to be a social consequence for having views like that. And what I mean by that is nobody is going to go on a march for paedophiles, right? Nobody's going to go on a march in support of racists, right? Am I saying Nazis are as bad as paedophiles and racists? Yes, I am, right? Because if you want to, basically if you want to get rid of every foreigner in the country, if you want to, if you believe that the Jews are ruining the world and all that kind of thing, there's no place for your, for your views in a civilized society society we can't even be having those discussions with you like it's not my job to hold your dick and teach you how to piss straight on this one right you're just going to have to accept that what you believe here is wrong okay when it comes down to all these things like if you start to believe that you're better than black people that they are intellectually inferior to you solely because of the color of their skin if you believe that somebody's religion makes them more pri pr prone to committing crime than anybody else i can't help you there's very little i can do but i have to shut you out from polite society i'm not going to sit in the same pub as you i'm not going to sit in the same cafe as you i prefer not to be on the same bus as you because you don't belong in that society with those with those kinds of attitudes because they do end up in the gas chambers. That's what happened. If you go back to uh, the 1920s, the mid-1920s in uh, Germany, yes, people were economically anxious as it's euphemistically called these days, that kind of thing. But these things grew. We didn't start with gas chambers. They grew and they grew and they grew. And the first part of it was making people wear the yellow triangle, the Jewish people. So the, the gay people had to wear a pink triangle, right? Then all of a sudden it was talking about what the what is called in German Untermensch, right? People who are under us. And once we started to to other people like that. It's very, very easy to do that. And of course, the last great taboo in Ireland when it comes to that is travellers. You can still say whatever you like about travellers. You can use, you can't use the N-word about black people, but by Jesus, you can call people a knacker. And in polite society, nobody's going to pull you up for it, or very, very seldom will you get pulled up for it. Knacker's just as, as racist as the, the word nigger when you're referring to a black person. So, I mean, like th these are the things that, and we're gradually moving away from all these things. When I went to school in the 80s in Ireland, of course, we told all the jokes about African people and Ethiopian people and famine and everything else and they were cruel and they were horrible and they never should have been said we didn't know any better and we moved on from that and thankfully we learned from that and eventually I hope to see within the next few years that the travelling people are treated with the same respect and that we become blind to all these things and we just look at it as looking at it as a closed chapter in history but the only way that that will happen is when sort of the vast majority of Irish people say you know what that's not okay anymore and that's yeah. that's what we have to do. Though. There has to be a social consequence for these things in that, you know, if you're sitting in a pub with a lad and he starts to talk in these terms about, you know, the Jews controlling the world and how they should all be gassed and how Muslims can't be trusted and all they do is rape women, you just stand up from the table of the pub and go, you know what, I don't want to be around you. If you're going to talk like this, I, I don't want to be around you anymore. And that really is where the activism begins and ends. That's how you change the world, right? I remember studying media and communication science and they talked about this concept where the media, contrary to popular belief, cannot tell us to, what to think. It can only tell us what to think about. So when you turn on Liveline or Kira Kelly or whatever it is tomorrow, right, they, they can put these subjects in front of your nose, right? So they'll tell you what to think about. Now, what you think about that subject is going to be coloured mostly by the views of yourself, your friends and your family, right? If we look back at marriage equality, if we look back at the repeal of the eighth referendum, the work there wasn't done. Nobody changed their mind because of a single poster and nobody changed their mind because of a prime time debate. People
people change their mind because of conversations in families and in workplaces and in dressing rooms. That was where those votes uh, for the winning side were won and that is where they were lost for the other side. So it is on that personal level. And for me, if we're going to have a society, and the only thing I want is a society based on compassion. I don't care what anybody does, right? for a living. I don't care if they're uber capitalists or whatever else they do. Base it on compassion. Try to be fucking decent to your fellow man. And I don't think you can go too far wrong there. But in order to do that, there has to be a social consequence to those who wish for the opposite, who just want to be mean to other people. Phil, Absolutely. Have, Phil, have you have you thought about uh, seeking uh, a couple of county councils or anything like that to back you <laughs> in an upcoming election at all? Gemma got there before me. She's got the journalist code. It's bad as hell, a couple of times I've been asked about this if I'd like to enter into politics. One thing is I've lived outside the country for a long time. Another thing is, for me, if, if I was to make that that move, right, this is basically like going from Manchester United to Liverpool, you know. If you make that move, you can never go back. Back. And I would rather be outside the tent pointing the finger and shouting at the people, at the things that people do wrong, than be inside the tent. I wouldn't rule it out in the future. There's like... There's so many things, and there's so many great things that could be done. You know, I was actually asked to speak to the Social Democrats Congress there back in January. You know, and I'm always very careful of this thing. That's when people talk about Sweden, they go, "Oh, is Sweden so great? Is Sweden so great?" You know, and it really annoys that bollocks out of people a lot to be hearing that Ireland is by far the greatest country in the world, right? Now, I believe that the Irish people are actual, uh, they're actual social democrats at heart, right? Because you think, right, if you're going to puncture tonight on the way to the garage or whatever, there's anybody, any amount of people that you could ring and they'll get out of their bed or they'll get off their couch and they'll turn off their PlayStation and they'll go and help you, right? That's what social democracy is. It's having somebody to turn to in your hour of need. And I remember making this speech to the people at the Social Democrats Conference and saying, you're actually, most people, Irish people, are actually social democrats already. And people go, whoa. And they were going, oh, you know, do you not think I stand for election? I fucking ran for the donor, you know, because that's one of those things that maybe, you know, 10 years down the line or whatever, because we're not far off. You know, we have such a great society and we have such care in people. You have the GAA, which is the greatest social democratic organization in the world, apart from that fucking sky deal that drives me nuts, you know. But, uh, you know, we have the, the foundations are there for it. And it's going to take very, very little uh, to, to push Ireland into that being a really, really rich, well-developed first world nation because we've come from the third world of the famine into being a first world nation. We're not quite there just yet. We need to do more for the people of the country. But, you know, to answer the question, in short, yes, but right now I feel that there's too many other things like, you know, I, I have to be out doing things, lads. I, I honestly don't think I could sit in Kildare Street on an office and go through policy papers. Like, because when I'm done talking to you now, I'm going to write about a football match. Then tomorrow morning, I'm going to be up doing a podcast at 11 o'clock. I'm going to be doing a thing with the BBC at lunchtime. Then I'm going to be filming for the Reuters News Agency in the afternoon. I have to keep busy. I have to keep telling stories the whole time. And if politics mm. becomes a way to tell those stories and help people out, well, then I'll do that. But for now, I'd rather stick with the journalism, you know? If, if we can... but, but... I just, just, I just wanted to, I, I, I wanted to pick up on something you said there, Phil, about you'd rather be outside the tent, point finger pointing, uh, uh, and I suppose that that, that kind of that's accountability. You want to keep uh, keep going and making people accountable. Do you think we're like just on the over the last month or so? And I'm reading, say, journalist articles and stuff like that. I don't believe there's enough accountability in, in journalists nowadays. Um, and what I mean by that is that. I don't believe they're putting enough accountability on the people that are running the country or for whatever stories it may be. I think we have yourself. Um, I think we have Ellen Coyne, who's unbelievable. Ellen is brilliant, um, yeah. And I think to a, to a, in a sports manner, we have Ewan McKenna, um, yep. who I believe, like the three of you, and I, I'm, I'm struggling to think of anyone else in terms of who is going to be kind of finger pointing all the time. Is that a worry yep. or do you, do you, am I talking shy or is that a, no, no. Is that, 
No, I, th- I think you're entirely correct, right? Now, I have to say, there are journalists out there doing absolutely brilliant work. And, uh, you know, they did fantastic work uh, against all the odds on the recent referendums. And they've done some great stuff around the homeless crisis and the housing crisis and that kind of thing as well, right? But that said, on the whole, we're still too cosy with politicians and people in power. That, that's I said the point before, I'm making, yeah. Yeah, I, I said before that, like, you know, like I have friends who are in Dal Airn or people I would know who are in Dal Airn, they should never be happy to see me. When they see me coming through that door or when they pick up my their phone and they see my number on it, they should be shitting themselves because they should be expecting me to be on their back about something. We're, we're the watchdogs. We're the, 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 the gamekeepers here looking out for these guys. The relationship between the media in Ireland and politicians and people in power is far too cosy. And sometimes it's sport as well, you know, that you know you're going to get t- your ticket for the All-Ireland for your father-in-law or whatever because, you know, you sort of kept the story quiet about, about some administrator or somewhere, that kind of thing. And that's what we have to remove. Now, this doesn't have to be a confrontational thing, guys. This can be very respectful. I know, like, I mean, there was a guy who was on to this evening, he's a politician who's running for election here on Sunday, and I just sent him a question about something entirely innocent for the report I want to do tomorrow. So it doesn't have to be this thing where, you know, they need to feel sort of uneasy or that kind of thing but they need to know that people are looking over their shoulders and that people are ready to hold them to account, right? We need to separate what we do and who we are, right? So if a politician does something wrong, and there's certain politicians, I don't want to name anybody in Ireland now because it would be deeply unfair to them when they're not here to defend themselves, right? But I've seen politicians tweet things and they've attacked other parties and that kind of thing. And I've said to them live online in front of everybody else, going, you're better than this. What, what are you doing this for? What's this based on? And that kind of thing. And you try to call them out and that kind of thing. And often you'll, see, you'll find that they'll back down from it. I'm not judging them as a person. I'm not saying that they're a bad father to their children or a bad husband to their wife or wife to their husband. I'm saying this time around, it's wrong, right? You need to stand up and you need to take ownership of this. There's very little of that happens, right? There's, in terms of corruption in Ireland, we all know that there are TDs in the doll who have taken backhanders. There's been uh, tribunals of inquiry that have found them to be corrupt and everything else like that. And yet there's still no consequence. They're still there with the biggest margins of victory that they've ever had, you know? So we need to be better at that. But the other thing we need to be better at is two things. We need to be better creators of media. We need to be better at going and finding these stories but we also need to be more savvy consumers of it, right? How many times have you read a headline in the paper, right? The back pages of the tabloids were always brilliant. If you read, you know, you might read in the morning that Louis, Louis Suarez is going to ban. Manchester United. The truth it. But somebody has taken some rumour from some Spanish paper and that kind of thing. We need to be on, on the boat. We need to know who are these uh, these unnamed spokespeople? Who are these sources that people are talking to? And why? Why are we being told these things at a specific time? The Irish water thing was full of that. Jesus, there was nobody that ever put their name to anything coming out of any civil service department about it. But they, that never stopped them. I mean, they leaked more than the water system itself at that point, you know? So we need to be asking, why are we being told these things at any specific time? What's the agenda? What's driving this? What's coming down the line? You know, and if we we educate ourselves as consumers of the media, I always say that the best lesson I ever learned was in civics class in art school, Reach on Griffith Avenue. The day the civics teacher taught me how to read a newspaper was the day my life changed when I understood how this works. What's news? What's comment? What's opinion? What's the editorial stance of the newspaper? Who owns the newspaper? Once I learned those things, that was I, I immediately I wanted to be a journalist after that. I wanted to be part of this thing. I wanted to be one of those watchdogs there, but I also wanted other people to know. And I've actually started my own podcast about media and that kind of thing. It's called Airman in Stockholm if anybody wants to look it up. And it's basically interviewing other journalists and and, uh, and editors about how the whole thing works. So I spoke to the PC, I've spoken to a conflict reporter, I've spoken to a professor of journalism. Tomorrow I'm speaking to a, a Swedish Greek reporter who's over here. She's written a brilliant book about gang violence and the mothers that are left behind after. And the idea, lads, is to make people media literate. Too many times we look at something on the television on the nine o'clock news 
and we don't understand where it came from. We don't understand why we're being told this, you know. Uh, RT is perfect, you know. If you see the way the bulletins are put together, it's the same structure every evening. It always ends with the weather. There might be some light-hearted story at the end. You'll have the sport just before that. Top of the air is usually something to do with uh, the, on a national level and that kind of thing, you know. L- look at the shots that they use, right? When you're filming a story about schools, what, what are you seeing? What, like, what, what pictures are being used? Who gets to talk? Is it the school children? Is it the principal? Is it the Minister for Education? All of these things affect how the story is framed. And they, in turn, affect how we see it. That's the information we use to make our decisions. So we need to be much more clever about how we consume the media and not just accept everything as fact just because some journalist said it, or indeed accept everything as a lie because some journalist said it. We need to be actively involved in our media consumption and make our decisions then based on that and based on the information that we have. Yeah, and I think that, in a way, kind of ties into the, what we were talking about earlier on and people having a platform as well. Like, I know, Meryl, we've talked about in this podcast before this thing of, you know, as media consumers, people themselves need to take responsibility for where they're consuming their media and, you know, almost doing a kind of a, a fact check of their own in terms of, like, not just taking everything at face value. And what you're saying there, Phil, about kind of journalists and, and holding people to, or holding politicians and, and even sports stars and that kind of thing to be more accountable of situations. I do think this whole thing, you know, journalists are meant to be the watchers on the wall kind of thing, on the fourth wall, if I yeah. can kind of, you know, be an absolute wanker about it. But um, this notion... No, but that's what it is. That's exactly what it is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but this notion, even during the week, there were, over here there was a story um, and how it hasn't grown legs and, you know, sprinted away and how it's not being talked about more baffles me. But Leo Varadkar thrown out the idea of creating fake accounts to put positive comments on government news stories and i'm like yeah wait what the leader of the country (laughs) is doing this and nobody wants to talk nobody nobody's going leo have you got a couple of minutes but i just want to ask you something (laughs) sit down and have a few questions for you yeah Yeah. (laughs) like it's fucking madness and like you said the cozy kind of relationships are definitely to blame because people are very much so ah if I don't do this, I might get a 15-minute exclusive with them, you know, come election yeah, that, time or, you know. That's the thing. I mean, I remember a great case in point is, is Conor McGregor, right? Because, I mean, I, I love what Conor, McGregor, what Conor McGregor does as a fighter, right? Yeah. I would be I would have serious reservations about things he says, like when he was doing it on the Maymac tour and that kind of thing. Do you remember the things he was coming out with? Uh, and he was using yeah, the yeah. should be using and that kind of thing. And I remember when the documentary was out, uh, when the Notorious documentary came out, I flew over to Dublin to interview him for the Reuters news agency. And we sat down and we literally didn't mention fighting for the whole time we were sitting there. We didn't mention fighting at all. The two things we talked about were the words that he used uh, on that tour and you know what, what effect that might have had on the younger people who was watching and would look up to him and money they were the two things that we talked about the whole time now the reason that's important to me lads is because I asked him a question one time in Madison Square Garden just before he fought Eddie Alvarez and I stood up and you know the way the UFC streams absolutely everything online yeah. on uh, what you call Fight Pass and that kind of thing and I stood up and I took the uh, the, the microphone and my phone started buzzing in my pocket and all it was was young fellas who look up to Connor going oh I can see on the telly I can see asking Connor a question right so that to me suggests that Connor has an absolutely huge following around the world of people who listen closely to what he says and what he does. And Connor actually said to me at that point, you know, he said, look, you know, there's, there's no handbook for this thing. I'm only learning myself. I'm only really realizing it now, you know. And it was a fair enough explanation, you know. I always kind of thought that when I was criticizing Connor publicly or when I was writing stories, because you can't ignore it. As I said, I like Connor as a bloke. I think he's a tremendous fighter, a tremendous athlete, one of Ireland's greatest ever, right? But I can't let that slide by. If he says some dumbass shit, I'm going to have to write about it, whether that affects his brand 
Ireland or whatever it happens to be, you know. And but a lot of guys you'll find that you know I know there's one or two MMA fighters who remain nameless, you know. That I've been critical of them for similar things, and they've never spoken to me again, you know. So that's the problem that the Irish media has, you know, because in in doing something like that with somebody as powerful and as well known as Connor, you know, you're, you're kind of taking a risk. But Connor's a big enough man to realize that he knows I'm not attacking him. He knows I'm only criticizing the things that he said. He is not those things that he said. He's not racist or homophobic. He's just saying the first fucking thing that comes into his head when they're thinking about it, you know. And there, this is the social that's journalism, though. That's journalism, there. though. Yeah, but that's, that's, that's what it should be, lads. And and it's yeah. but it's at the moment it's not. And we need to get away from this idea that these people owe us favors or we owe them favors. I'm sorry, we have to call it, even if it costs somebody we like their job, you know. But yeah, again, we're not standing judgment on them as people. We're standing in judgment of what they were doing for politicians, for instance, what they were elected to do. That's what we need to, to hold them to account to. And they have to be big enough to accept that as well, you know? And this is the problem. And I mean, I've said this to people that are very friendly within politics. So one of these days, if I have to come after you, you know it's going to happen. A friend of mine is a professional footballer here in Sweden and he played in Italy, he played in Spain. And it's the same thing. We ran a football club together and he knows that if he's ever done for doping or any of these things, that I'll, I'll have to do him. You know, that's, it's, it's that simple. But he realizes that. And that's, you know, he's been in my house. His kids have been here. We've had dinner together and that kind of thing but if that day comes when he fucks up I'm sorry that all goes out the window and I have to do the job and that, that goes for absolutely everybody so if you're in the doll bar five days a week that doesn't excuse you from your responsibility to your readers to your viewers to your listeners to do the fucking job right you know definitely um, if I can take a little bit of a weird segue and try my best to tie it all in together You've, you mentioned earlier on about kind of Ireland and the people make Ireland fucking great and that we're all kind of social democrats at heart. And then we kind of moved on just there and we were talking about how we consume media and you know, not just trusting one source kind of thing. Uh, the World Cup this year was in Russia. And if we're all to believe, you know, Western media, Russia is a cold, horrible place where the people are miserable and, you know... Now, a lot of it's true and that kind of thing, but the World Cup this year certainly booked that trend. And it seemed as yep. though the, the people, you know, I, I heard a couple of bad stories kind of thing, but overall it seemed like a completely positive tournament. Arguably one of the, the, the best World Cups in, in memory for me anyway. Um, and it was a, a combination of, yeah, the football was great, but the Russian people were just unbelievably hospitable. You were there, man. Tell us a little bit about it. They were absolutely brilliant. The only negative thing I have to say about the Russian people is they cannot fucking drive, right? But apart from that, <laughs> it was, they were just outstanding. They were brilliant because, like, I remember being a young fella, right, in the late 70s and early 80s and being really interested in radio and that kind of thing. I remember using a long wave radio or a short wave radio, I can't remember which it was, and tuning in Radio Moscow, which was this propaganda channel and listening to it, just thinking this was so exotic, you know? And ever since then, we have this idea of what Russia is supposed to be like, you know, this idea of the big Russian bear. And I know people in Sweden are fucking afraid of their lives because they could just come cruising across Estonia and invade the place in no time, you know? But what you always find about these places, lads, is once you get there, they're people of flesh and blood like you and me. And the only thing they want to do is they're, they're proud of their country. They're proud of their football team. They want to make a few bob and bring up their children in peace and quiet and maybe have a few quid left for a pint or two at the end of the week. There is literally no difference. I was there when they were beaten by Croatia 
uh, was that in the uh, the quarterfinals? That was the last game I did in Sochi, and people were devastated. They were delighted. They were so proud of how their team had, had done because it was things were going really bad for them before that. But the hospitality, uh, hosp- hospitality of those people was absolutely outstanding. I was about two, uh, what was it, two hundred fifty kilometers north of Sochi on the Black Sea coast in Galenchik, where the Swedish team were based. Iceland were ten minutes up the road, and Denmark were about forty five minutes away. Went up there, not a sinner spoke English, not even me, you know. And all it was was Google Translate and everything else like that. And they were so so helpful and they did their absolute best to make you feel at home they like they couldn't do enough for you you know and this is the thing that you never really see like what you see about russia in the western world is they just put up putin on television and they go everybody should be scared of this bloke yeah but you know i would go back to uh, how it was between ireland and great britain in the 70s and the 80s and the situation in northern ireland that day i never hated the british people i hated what their fucking governments were doing repeatedly to the nationalist community in the north of ireland and the oppression that those people were put through but i never had a problem with the british people they were the same as ourselves they were getting fed a whole lot of information making the decisions based upon that i mean it was a terrible situation that but you couldn't really blame them even though they live in a democracy you can't blame them for it in the same way that you can't blame the russian people the other thing is russia's fucking enormous it's huge mm. and like there was thousands of miles to be traveled between those games that kind of thing so you can't even generalize about russia because the people are so diverse and the country is so diverse that you know we were saying to lads you know they're in cities a thousand miles away oh have you have you tried this dish in this restaurant or whatever you know see if they have that and they wouldn't they would never have even heard of it because these things haven't stretched that far you know so it really was i mean where we were there was a like i don't drink but there was lads drinking georgian wine that had come across the border which is slightly to the south of us and we were being brought to these places where they were making their own vodka and this kind of thing and the whole thing was mad you know they were mad to show you these aspects of their culture but they were hugely welcoming you know and much more so i was there for the winter olympics a few years ago and then it was just cold and dark and miserable and that kind of thing it wasn't great but the world cup was just immense and I know people say that, you know, if you're going to corrupt regimes and that kind of thing and Qatar and all that kind of thing. Yeah, I, I get that, you know, but I mean, if you see the places like, you know, the, the World Cups have been held in before in dictatorships in Argentina in 1978, nothing has changed. Like this is all, this is not a new thing. This has been going on. Sport has been used as a tool to sort of, you know, to polish the image of nations for donkey's years. And it's not going to stop anytime soon. When when you're talking about that, and in my head straight away, I'm jumping to uh, after the last Euros, BBC was a, be, uh, I can't remember what show on the BBC it was, but they showed this undercover footage of yeah, yeah, yeah. Rus- Russian hooligans training for the English fans coming over, and they were having these essentially fight factories to to ready yep. themselves for all-out gang war, it seemed. And then, you know, the World Cup happens, and yeah, I'm, I'm watching Russian fans joining in with the English fans singing Atomic Kitten songs. <laughs> and I'm like, what's going on here? This is not. Yeah. Ivan Drago did not set me up for this. What is happening? Like, you know, the BBC right. didn't set us up for this. Yeah, no, no, exactly. This is the thing. What happens is, right, the beast must be fed. So when you are coming up to any sort of a tournament, any sort of a major event, and everything else like that, right? Everybody's writing articles about what they expect to happen and that kind of thing. And the blacker the headlines, the better it sells, right? Hooliganism is one of those things where everybody absolutely loves it. Now, I was with the, the British fans or the English fans in France at Euro 2016, and everybody's going, oh, the British fans, the British fans are here, they're wrecking the place. Now, they were involved. They got a few beatings off Russian supporters right enough. But they were mostly singing that terrible Don't Take Me Home song over and over again, 
was drinking beer and there were no problem. And I remember broadcasting this live on the Reuters uh, Facebook page for hours on end interviewing people and they were just doing what English fans do. They can be rowdy and they can be loutish and that kind of thing but there's no real problem with them. So what happens is in Feeding the Beast you're looking for these angles for things that might happen, right? I don't know how many times I've been told. We were told before the, Brazil, the, uh, the World Cup in Brazil a few years ago under no circumstances are you allowed to go into the favelas. I picked up a rental car and the first thing I did was went straight to a favela and I had the time of my life there with people <laughs> kicking a ball around on a George Street, right? Because... The, the, and, and it's always the people who've never been to any of these places, right? They've been sitting on a news desk or a sports desk somewhere for donkey's years. They've never been outside the building, not even at lunchtime. And then they go and tell you how dangerous it is. And then you get out there, you go, hey, lads, this isn't too bad. You know, like when, when we haven't experienced these things, we tend to sow the seeds of fear. That's like what people say about Sweden at the moment. They have what the, they call these particularly vulnerable areas. I live in one of them. You know, I mean, you can, I can wander out the street now. Nobody's going to lay a finger on me. But if somebody tells you, and if you read and you hear this often enough, then you're going to believe that the, the, the hooligans are waiting at the airport to kick the shit out of anybody with a scarf on coming through. And it's simply not true. Poland has a problem with hooligans. Sweden has a problem. There's about six or seven firms here, I'd say, that are in any way sort of, you know, reasonably active and they meet up and they beat the shit out of one another, you know. I've come close to them on occasion, you know, but they never threaten me. It's mostly among themselves that they like to do the fighting, no more than they do in, in top flight and uh, lower down the divisions in England, you know. So an awful lot of that kind of thing. Like, again, this goes back to what I was saying about being media literate, right? You take this with a pinch of, a pinch of salt. Why are they telling me this now? Who are they talking to? Who's telling you them these things, right? And you'll often find that you know, it might be some fellow who has a blog about hooliganism who's telling you these things. Yeah, well, he's bound to do that because he's looking for a few clicks. What are the security forces saying? What are the local police saying? What's the Ministry for Sports saying? And this kind of thing. And then all of a sudden you find, when you start to ask questions to those people, you'll find that nobody really had a huge amount of worries about hooliganism in Russia because the hooligans themselves know that there's no great political benefit. They're as proud of their country as we are of ours. And, you know, they're not going to make their country look shit just to give some fella a slap in the jaw. You know what I mean? So, like, an awful lot of those things, they just sort of disappear reasonably quickly when you really start to look at what, when you pull back the curtain, you see the reality of these things. And unfortunately, a lot of it is just sensationalism. Phil, I'm, I'm snapping that we're running out of time, Jimmy, because uh, I'm, I'm absolutely loving this chat, but I'm conscious you have about 400 different things you need to look after, based on <laughs> what you were saying to us there. <laughs> But before we, I can tell you, it's still between Slovakia and Denmark at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> uh, before we let you head off into the sunset, you mentioned earlier on your podcast, Airman in Stockholm, and you've, yes. you've recently launched your Patreon and that as well, man. Tell us a little bit about yes. that and where can people find it? Uh, you can find it on patreon.com forward slash airman in Stockholm. And the reason I wanted to do that, lads, is because I want to get a bunch of subscribers so that I can do, I can continue to do independent journalism where I'm not dependent on an editor or somebody saying, yeah, we can pay for that. Go ahead and do it, right? Because so many stories do not get told, right? I could have done, you know, we're coming up to the election here now in Sweden and I've been to small towns and I've interviewed people. I'm going to talk to an awful lot of people with immigrant backgrounds tomorrow about what a far-right victory, so to speak, would mean for them if they're worried about that, right? But if I was depending on, you know, an editor saying to me, here's a few hundred quid, go and do that for me, it would never get done or never get done properly. A lot of these things need time. I'm going to be publishing a story in the next week uh, about corruption within the building industry, which has a major, major effect on the student accommodation market in Ireland. But more of that when it comes up. So what I need is, and I don't need a whole lot of money off any one specific person, but if anybody can throw in the price of a pint or a cup of coffee or whatever it happens to be and help me out there, and I promise you, not only will you get the podcast that's going to make you the most media literate person in Ireland, but you'll also get a few cracking yarns along the way, not least from Connor's next fight in Las Vegas as well, because we'll be heading over there as well. But that to me as well, this mo uh, pardon me? That, that's brilliant. Yeah, but, but uh, sorry, just around... Just 
just a, just around off there. Uh, yeah, this this micro payments thing is the way forward, right? We have far too many big organisations where you have a big fella sitting in a chair looking at a window making the decisions. I, I don't have any sort of huge rental costs. Any all I have is my equipment and my travel, and that's it. And that's what I want to be doing. I want to be out there, boots on the ground, producing and telling people about things I see around the world, and letting them make up their own minds about where it is. Then, love it. Brilliant. Enjoy yeah. Vegas. Yeah, I was going to say. I, I'll, I'll do my best, lads. It's a hard old station, you know, but I'll do my best. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a tough old job heading over there and, you know, jet lag and, you know, decent enough food, decent enough weather. Yeah, you'll struggle over there, yeah. Phil. Yeah, Khabib's call, blood call call six feet from the cage and that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Connor's got to knock him out. Ah, yeah, I think so. Reckon? I, I reckon so, yeah. It's just the, the more people I talk to uh, behind the scenes, the more like Khabib can't strike and he can't defend. And you know, Michael Johnson can rock him back on his heels before getting absolutely murdered. Like all Connor, all Connor needs is just one shot, you know. And Khabib yes. has to come in. He has to close the distance. He has to take him down. And, and that's the thing. Like Connor's just going to stand there. And he's just going to wait the same way Jose Aldo came in and tried to land that. And it's, it may not be twenty seconds, but I would expect it to go the same way again. You know. I'm still sticking with Khabib. I'm st- I still think Khabib does it. Who'd be one, Danny? Oh, well, Petey Carroll's on my side as well, don't forget. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah we're about to see the difference between me, the heavyweight champ, and Petey Carroll, the up-and-coming contender, lads. That's, <laughs> that's all. <laughs> Love it. Phil, Listen, it, Phil, it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh-huh, uh, time, lads. Let's do this again sometime. Yeah, definitely. definitely. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll have to make this... Uh, uh, I don't, we have a couple of guests that we get on frequently enough, kind of at least once a year, and... Uh, I think think your name's just made the list, mate. <laughs> it took us too long. It took us too long to get you on. So I, I'd be honoured to be back on again in the near future. Thanks very much. Yeah, cheers, Phil. Yeah. All the best, man. Thank you. Thanks so much, Phil. Cheers. Thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed that. I didn't want that to end. That was class. Yeah. What a gentleman. I, I love when we get a guest that as they're talking, I find myself just nodding along and smiling to like ninety percent of what they're saying. And absolutely. He just, yeah, do you know what? Like, he's just a bloke who's like, yeah, this is what it is. And I know this is what it is. And that's it. And, uh, and I was like, yes, keep talking, Phil. Keep fucking talking music to me ears, man. That hour flew by. I didn't realise it was yeah. an hour. Absolutely did fly by. I tell you what, he's just got himself a new Patreon as well. I'm definitely signing up. Cause... And um, we will get him on frequently. Yeah, I think we will. I think we'll reach out to him again in another little while. Um, and get yeah. back on because that was a good one. Um, check him out on Twitter as well, lads. I I forgot to ask him his Twitter handle. Um, it's it's at Philip O'Connor and Philip yeah. is with, is with. Yeah. So um, there you go. Check that out. Graymo, it's been a pleasure, my yeah. friend. I enjoyed that. Absolutely. Now we, I'd so did I, and it, it distracted the hunger. It did, it did. But the hunger's getting the better of both of us. So I think we should let people know where they can hear all previous one hundred and fifty nine episodes of WTS Podcast. They can go to any podcast provider, Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, um, and just type in WTS Pod. They can also go to uh, Facebook.com forward slash um, WTS Pod Ireland. And they can also go to our Twitter page at WTS Pod. Also as well, our website, WTS Pod.com. Um, our Facebook, we've neglected because 
I don't know why, but sure, we might get. I'll try and get that back going. Yeah, we, we've neglected our Facebook page, and also a couple of people have been at me saying it's the six hundred dead. What's happening? Is it not coming back? Jesus, to, I keep forgetting. Yeah, to be honest with you, lads, it's just you know ninety percent of the six hundred not happening is my fault because with the the new living arrangements and trying to get the handle on all these new recording arrangements and one thing and the other, it's very hard to do the six hundred and the yoke. But look, it's not dead. Absolutely. It's just it's just on hiatus, but it will return, and when it does, you know, it, it'll return with just as much gusto as it came into your life. Exactly, we'll bring it back. And best of luck to Realme Paul Howard on the latest Russell Carroll Kelly book, Dancing with Absolutely. the Stars in bookshops. I think now, if not, yeah, it's, it's if not, it's definitely available. By the time it's released, it's yeah. yeah. So uh, check that one out. And did you need his article about the dog Humphrey? Did I emotional roller coaster? Of an article, oh, emotional roller coaster of an article. So yeah, what a absolutely right, Mero. Let's both go and get a big belly full of food into us. Until Lovely. next week, Makara. Clear eyes, full hearts and bellies. Can't lose. Too sweet. Look. <laughs>